I'm the mischievous Mark Giannacchio, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, Amazing Fantasy 15, and all of the annuals, which I still don't think count. And I'm Dapper Dan Gavonston, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals, which I say definitely count. But for me, Mark, Amazing Fantasy 15 remains a fantasy. Welcome to The Amazing Spider Talk, a show where two fans and collectors uncover the strange, fun, and fascinating history of the Spider-Man comic universe. Thanks for joining us for this review episode of The Amazing Spider Talk. If you want to swing along with us on our journey through Spidey's past, present, and future, subscribe to Amazing Spider Talk on your favorite podcast app. And of course, leave us a review to help spread the word about our show. This podcast exists because of the support of our Patreon members. If you want to receive early episodes, exclusive artwork, and help to keep this podcast going 400 episodes strong, go to AmazingSpiderTalk.com and consider joining our Patreon. But today on the show, Mark and I are going to be discussing Amazing Spider-Man Volume 6, number 33. 33rd issues are a special thing, Mark, and I think this proves maybe the case. What's new? This issue is written by Zeb Wells. The cover artwork is by John Romita Jr., Scott Hanna, and Marcio Menez. And the interior artwork is by Patrick Gleason, with colors again by Marcio Menez, and of course, letters by VC's Joe Caramagna. This issue was first released on September 6th, 2023. All right, Mark, this issue was heavy on vibes, but maybe a little bit light on plot. Why don't you get through the recap here of Amazing Spider-Man Volume 6, Number 33. Yeah, Dan, if I didn't want to, like, annoy our listeners, I would, like, do this all in, like, a Vincent Price voice, a la Thriller or something. Like, (laughs) we open But alas, I know, like, you know, similar to me singing, like, the songs of Foreigner and stuff, it, it, it would get old fast. So instead... We open on Dark Peter, looking quite dark and stoic. He's sitting, contemplating how he no longer has to pretend to ignore what's deep inside him. Craven has done something to him. He's always doing something to him. And now he's ready to exact punishment since he is no longer the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. We get a crack of lightning for added effect. And then Peter starts to think about the time Craven buried him alive and about what he'd like to do to him if he wasn't so friendly. 
That brings us to Norman Osborne, who is frantically climbing the stairs looking for Peter. Norman sees that Peter is gone, presumably out fighting crime, but then he notices the discarded red and blues and is suddenly in a panic about what Peter is up to. Craven, meanwhile, he's going through it, thinking about how he was faced down by Spider-Man and ran from him. He affirms to himself that he is Craven the Hunter, while the voice inside keeps telling him how he ran. He's contemplating how to go up against the Spider-Man and is conflicted by weapons and approach, and that's when he realizes he is no longer the hunter, but the prey. I mean, my goodness, this was really begging for Vincent Price. Well, I'm not going to do it, Dan. I'm not. <laughs> Finally, Craven is raring to go, shotgun in hand, but the black-suited Spider-Man crawls up from behind him and stabs him in the neck with a syringe. Craven is immediately disoriented, but starts running from the spider. He is Craven the Hunted, overwhelmed by the fear of every animal he's previously hunted. He thinks he can get the jump on Spider-Man, but is quickly overtaken. Spider-Man pins him down and tells him he can't believe he was ever scared of Craven. Spider-Man pins him down and tells him he can't believe he was ever scared of Craven and that he allowed him to bury him alive. Craven is like, that wasn't me, that was my father. But Spider-Man is all of us talking about the status quo and it says, close enough. But then Spidey lets Craven go, toying with him, and Craven runs some more before falling into a sewer. Craven wades through the sewer when a voice tells him to stop so the serum can do its work. And that's when a swarm of vermin appear, smelling something tasty. Apparently Craven's pheromones. I mean, I guess I'd rather be talking Craven's pheromones than silks. Maybe? I don't know, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> we love our pheromones in Amazing Spider-Man. The vermin quickly overtake Craven, but just as they are ready to administer the kill shot, Spider-Man steps in and starts to throw them overboard. But he's not there to save Craven, oh no, but instead to throw him into a grave. Spider-Man tosses the shotgun into the grave behind Craven just in case he wants to skip to the end. And then of course we end with Spider-Man tossing dirt onto Craven and once again lightning striking Ooh. what a moody issue dan <laughs> well mark you might not be vincent price but i thought that was a great recap although you miss a, like plenty of opportunities for gen x references i mean no benji the hunted reference <laughs> here. I mean, come on, mark. i'm sorry uh, I, I thought better of you i thought All better right. of you well, well <laughs> An issue like this, uh, I'll just come out of the gate and th say I thought this was an incredible issue of Amazing Spider-Man. It made me really rethink about my feelings about, you know, Craven's last hunt retreads, which is kind of a like thing we've gotten a lot of, especially over the past few years between like Hunted and Lost Hunt and Dark Peter stories, which I think... Not only have we recorded that grim, dark hot takes episode that we did for season six, where we're kind of like, uh, dark Spider-Man stuff isn't really our jam. And it's also kind of been a theme that we've returned to without really any real consistency. I mean, I'm thinking about like amazing Spider-Man volume six, number 27, where in the aftermath of, uh, the death of frequent cast member, Kamala Khan, Spider-Man went dark for an issue not really. Uh, we've been pretty disappointed in some of the kind of returns on both of these ideas. And yet, and yet, I thought that this issue was the best of both of those things. Like, I don't know that there's a Craven's Last Hunt or Dark Peter story 
I like as much as I like this issue. And I'm trying to pick apart why. What do you think, Mark? I, I don't want to jump around too much. I, I, I'm, I'm revealing sausage making here, Dan. But I, I got to say, like, everything about this issue, in my opinion, revolves around the, the, the talent that is Patrick Leeson. And we could talk very specifically, but from a broad stroke standpoint, you know, not that Zeb Wells didn't contribute a worthwhile script here, but like this comic is all about mood. It's all about vibes, as you said in the intro. And I think to pull off this story, especially in light of all of the kind of disappointing ones, for lack of a better word, that have preceded it in this vein, um, you really just had to kind of like set a real visual tone and tempo and, and cadence to it. And Gleason just does it like, like this, this is, this book to me is all about him. And like I said, we'll still talk more about that later in this episode, but like, like this is, this is the dark Peter issue that works, but frankly, it's also like Patrick Gleason's coming out party. I mean, he's already done some great work, but like, to me, this is what is, is going to ascend Gleason into the upper echelon of not just Spider-Man artists, but comic book artists. I, I, I'm with you. I, I felt like that this was just a, a, a remarkable improvement on the, on this theme that, you know, it just seems like the spider office just can't resist. <laughs> it's like, it's always, <laughs> but, 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 but this, but this nails it. I mean, and we still have multiple chapters to go. So we'll see how it ultimately sticks the landing. I mean, you know, we've been here before where we've really liked uh, the initial setup to something and then been let down. I kind of feel like this is a little different in large part because of the Gleason of it all. What about, wh- wh- where do you want to go from that commentary? <laughs> One of the things that I think is interesting about Craven's last hunt all the way back when it first came out is how much of, of deviance in tone and writing style that book is. Um, and I would say the same is true here. Like if, if you told me that like JMD came back and, and wrote this, uh, you know, completely in a vacuum from what Zeb Wells was doing, other than the fact that it continues that story, it is an entirely different writing style. And that can be really like abrupt and out of nowhere, as I think it kind of is in Craven's Last Hunt, which is why I think I like that story more as a graphic novel thing that exists on its own than any kind of like part of Spider-Man's ongoing canon, which it is. And it's a valuable, you know, addition to that. But it just feels so different in its intention and tone and style than like most big two comics. And this is somewhere in between definitely like, but it does feel as abrupt. And yet what I think makes it work too, is that this, we spent so long building to get here, this Norman story and the idea of these sins has been percolating for what? Like since the Nick Spencer run and this is the big payoff to it, apparently. I mean, it may not be. Ultimately, you're right. We have seen these things just kick the football down the field and give us a disappointing ending. But this really does feel like we've arrived at the fireworks factory, as uh, Alan likes to put it when, when he comes on the show. And so, therefore, like the Dark Peter also doesn't feel like it's out of nowhere um, or that much of a deviation because... It's not even Peter, really. It's like an alternate character 
with that is you know sharing Peter's body in some way or um, or, or is his darkest secrets revealed? It's not him in his right mind going dark. And so like a lot of this stuff just lands without really holding on to all of the stuff that typically detracts from these kind of stories. I mean, even the Craven last hunt of it all, like most of the repeats of that or the like spiritual successors to that just dig deeper into the Craven off family and that story or seek to undo it or, soften the blow a little bit even like soul of the hunter is like jmd's apologies for the suicide element in craven's last hunt and grim hunt is there specifically to undo it and you know lost hunt which we got last year you know it's jmd but it's like him mining a minor wrinkle in the minutiae of the craven off family and this just doesn't bother with any of that it's like Nope, we're doing our own thing. Like it's going to be an inversion on Craven's Last Hunt, but it's telling its own what seems to be original story and moving it forward and not I mean, yes, it is focused on repeating past glories, but it doesn't feel reductive to that original story in any way. We're we're talking about a dark story, so I'll 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 use a crass descriptor here. I think this kind of like steps on the neck of the of the other like kind of craven ruminations that we've gotten over the years it's just like it's just like no we're 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 gonna go all i think it goes all in on what it what it needs to go all in on and then also the things that it does pay homage to you know i mean yes they're the the highlights if you will like i you know jumping in again to the end a little bit i thought him tossing the shotgun into the casket was just brilliant because it was, you know, like to your point that you were making before, like the the Craven suicide has always been kind of like this third rail, if you will, even, you know, as celebrated as the story is. I mean, so much so that, you know, JMD himself kind of has has retconned aspects of it or, or kind of apologized for it. And, you know, this is just like, no screw screw that like <laughs> you know you're you're, you're gonna want this <laughs> boom <laughs> um and it, it it was just like it, it was a very kind of like stirring moment for me you know reading this being like oh wow like and and i i also want to talk a little bit about like the dark spider-man element of it because like you said it, it's not just like oh spidey's in a mood or something like that i mean it's it seems to be something a little more subverted than that and um I think putting it as an alternative Peter is 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 a good way of putting it. But like I, I, I also I came away with the impression and, and if this is a, a an odd read on my part, I, you know, I apologize. But like I f- did feel that these feelings were true to Peter. It was just. You know, Peter of his of of sound mind without the the sins of Norman Osborn coursing through him would never act on this. And, you know, like that's going to launch to if it you know, as I'm sure it already has in certain circles, a full range of debates about like, oh, this is, you know, it's out of character. But like, that's the thing. Like I I there was nothing about his thought process and like, you know, all the, the the inner monologuing that we got that made me feel like that this wasn't true to something that was deep within Peter. I think, you know, like I, I, I think it's, it's, 
unrealistic and naive to think that people don't have a dark side, but like, yes, the more virtuistic, heroic people can suppress it. But like, he obviously can't in this scenario because of the MacGuffin of sins. I mean, you could say, oh, well, sins, what does that mean? But like, I don't know. Like, I think as a premise, it works in terms of how he acted and what he was thinking. There was nothing in there where I was like, oh, like, I, like why is he going there? Like, you know, like, yeah, this dude buried him alive. And then it was like, well, it wasn't really me. Well, I, I made the joke in the recap, but it's like we we have we are on the understanding that this is all craven now, you know, whether it's, you know, <laughs> yeah. the, the son, the father, the clone, the whatever. It's craven, you know, and like. This is all the same lineage at this point. So let's just be be transparent about it and be like, no, like this guy, you know, Spider-Man is going to go hard after this guy because, you know, he he did one of the ultimate. What's the word I'm looking for? Like defeats a Spider-Man in, in the history of this of this character. So anyway, this book is really an inversion of Craven's last hunt. You know, and that's really what I like about it. I feel like so many of the other iterations of this, and you know, even down to Hunted, which like I think was trying to get at a really interesting theme about like, you know, what does Peter do basically when he's holding the shotgun? You know, does he kill Craven, you know, and allow and, and allow this to happen? And here we're seeing that facilitated by, you know, magic or whatever. But I, I think what's great about this is it doesn't, really try to repeat the themes of the original or explore themes that have been otherwise previously explored, like the kill code, which has been explored to death here. It looks like I, I, I don't know that I've read a Spider-Man story like this before. So like, I don't know where this is going to go. Like sincerely have no idea where this story is headed and what it wants to say about these characters as to the whole, like, Cray Jew versus Craven senior of it all. One of the things that I thought was really neat about this is like, it does feel out of nowhere to have the Craven stuff take over this story in the final chapters between Peter and Norman, you know, like it's Peter and Norman's story. Why are we deviating to Craven? But Wells does a, a really interesting thing here where he casts Cray Jew as someone who sees his own father's madness represented in the sins of Norman and not occupied in Peter. And this book really leans into it. And that the idea is like, if he can eradicate that, maybe he can eradicate the madness that ultimately drove his father to suicide and ultimately maybe save himself. And I thought that was a really clever way to make this like, interjection of Craven into what should be a Peter Norman story make more sense. You know, even if it still feels like a left turn into, you know, monologuing with your fear and all that stuff, that was enough to convince me. I see this kind of like triangle that they're establishing here uh, between these characters and how they all interact, you know, relate with each other, which I think is very true to even Craven's last hunt where it's like, Half of that book isn't about Spider-Man. It's about Craven and Vermin fighting each other, you know? In that regard, I think this one works in a similar way and is similarly successful as a continuation of the ongoing narrative that we've been getting thus far. Well, it's 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 funny you said that. You, you said what you said, Dan, because like you got me thinking about something that honestly I had not thought about in the aftermath of reading this comic, which is, you know, 
when you talk, start talking about like kind of the, the cyclical nature of father and sons and the sins of the father and how they impact the son, you know, my mind immediately starts to go to the other very famous Jam Demetrius story from um, Spider-Man Past, which was The Child Within, which is about Peter and Harry and Vermin and Ashley Kafka and all of these other characters. And, 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 and I'm starting to get a lot of like parallels to that story here in terms of, you know, especially coming on the light of Norman more or less professing to Peter or, or excuse me, Peter professing to Norman in the last issue that, you know, I'm finally starting to see the father figure in you that you've always kind of talked about. And it, you know, it was for the longest time, an abusive relationship, you know, it's the the irony of like, as this relationship is finally starting to become a healthy relationship that, that, you know, because of the sins of Norman, Peter has gone down this path. Um, It's, it's setting up some very interesting parallels to, to, the struggle that Harry went through that ultimately led to his demise, which was retconned and retconned and retconned again, or whatever, wherever we ended up on that. <laughs> and but, yet to be retconned further, I'm sure. But yeah. And, and look, I mean, I'm not, I, maybe that's an overread on my part, or maybe that's where Zeb Wells is going with all this. But like, I definitely think that like, you know, it, it is kind of funny because I, I, I feel like of all the, the Spider-Man writers we've had in recent years, the one that was, I feel most heavily influenced by uh, Jan Demetrius was Nick Spencer. And yet I feel like, you know, I, I'm not trying to compare and contrast here, but like, I feel like Zeb is hitting on some of the themes a little more acutely than, um, than Nick. Maybe, you know, it, it just didn't execute. I feel as well from Nick's end. Uh, whereas I think Zeb is, is kind of hitting on those, those emotional notes. So with a little more clarity, it is interesting just to see like the kids who grew up reading those comics when they came out are now in charge of these books, you know, and that's a cyclical process. You know, I don't think Dan Slott was quite as locked into one era or another in where he pulled from, but it seems to me very clear, like Zeb Wells and Nick Spencer are, you know, readers of a certain era. And that is what their books are really focusing on. And that actually like leads to an interesting point here uh, talking about, I want to talk about how this book is an inversion of uh, Craven's last hunt, but even the role of Norman is very interesting in this book because in, in my idea, Norman is kind of taking the place of Mary Jane in this story. Now I know we've got Mary Jane on an, a variant cover coming up where, you know, she's like being held by black suit Spider-Man. So maybe she has a part yet to play in this. But the idea of like Norman running up to the window and seeing Spider-Man gone and worrying about the state of him, like clearly put him in the place of Mary Jane, whether he's like Peter's new wife or whatever, like he's a member of Peter's family that's worrying about him. I'm curious to see, you know, where that goes. Like Mary Jane's window as a portal out into this dangerous world that, Peter was lost in and her kind of search for him led her into trouble with vermin and, um, uh, you know, a bunch of like, uh, fig- male figures on the street that eventually had her collide with Craven dressed up as Spider-Man. You know, there's many places that I could go and I could see Norman fulfilling that role. He looks out the window, but it's to him, it's a mirror, you know? And, and I thought that was a really interesting piece of writing from Wells And I'm excited to see like where this takes Norman on this journey, because I think obviously this is a big 
culminating chapter and putting him in the Mary Jane role, I think is actually really fascinating. Were there any other inversions of the script here that you were particularly fond of? I know you mentioned the like tossing the rifle down into the grave. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just just like Cravens and Kreju, however, we want. I, I, I still have a hard time calling them Kreju. I'm not going to lie. Uh, <laughs> Clone that, that Craven. That one's you. I, I, uh, <laughs> I, I, um, I, I, I found his entire inner monologue to be so fascinating in terms of inversions here because you know it's it's obviously in craven's last hunt you know craven's monologue is is very focused on like you know being the hunter the hunter and like this is you know craju's is so much about being the hunted and and you know like he's he's trying to fight it and you know kind of again going back to the father son of it all you know like trying you know he's he's basically having an argument with himself or his father in his head or however you want to put it, you know, what he should be doing here uh, and like disgracing the family. But like at the same time, like he just having him be the prey, um, which, you know, the solicits kind of gave that away, but like it still was, I felt written very thoughtfully. And obviously the, the, you know, Gleason's art supported it wonderfully it, like I, I got real fear and apprehension. I mean, you know, I made the joke about the pheromones in the recap, but the fact of the matter is, is like the, the way the words were kind of lifting off the page from Craven's inner monologue, like it kind of felt like pheromones kind of coming off the page, you know, like it was just oh, pure interesting, fear. Yeah. It was just pure fear, you know, um, you know, pure fear and anxiety and cortisol and all those, all those other uh, chemicals <laughs> that 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 are you know you, you are not good if you if you if you give it off too many of them. So anyway, um, that that's that that's just my other big takeaway in terms of the inversion of it all. I mean, yeah, there's that one image of him like running and reflecting that he's the prey of that like vertical close up of his face of his eyes bulging. Like I've never seen Craven presented that way and. Uh, that's to say, I also thought that the writing from Wells of like everyone pro- like, you know, responding to their unconscious fear based thoughts was handled much better in this issue than it was the previous issue, mainly because it was consistent in this issue. Everybody was ha- was engaging in this way with their fears and uh, how they countered their their active mind. And I, I just love that the bit with Craven where he sees himself as a variety of animals in fleeing. Cause we've always seen him like reflect on like, I am the tiger. I am the whatever, you know, and I am the hunter, but seeing it the other way around where he's like, I'm, you know, sympathizing with my prey for once was an interesting inversion on all of that. And then another one I wanted to point out, you know, I think when you think back on Craven's last hunt in terms of spider imagery, I think a lot of people remember like, the rat and the spiders fighting on top of the grave and Peter following the spider to the light to escape uh, his tomb and crawling his way out. But the book opened weirdly with like Peter in a kind of like humorous scene. And at least in the way it's drawn, it's like a lighter version of Mike Zek's interpretation of Peter. And really like one of the few times we see Peter's face in Craven's last hunt it almost looks like a John Romita Jr. face. He sees a spider on the wall. He squishes the spider out of fear, like something is coming in the night. 
and he even crushes like his own animalistic totem on the wall. But here the inversion is that he's not going to be afraid and he aggressively squishes the spider in the beginning in this like gross, like super hyper aggressive fashion. And I was like, okay, we're not getting the same story here. Uh, and I, I thought that was really a clever way of telling us like, we're not in the same type of Craven story this time around. Mark, what did you think about the inclusion of vermin in this story? Because like, you know, Vermin always seems to come back for these Craven stories, even though he's not really an integral <laughs> member of Spider-Man's cast. Not in the way Kamala Khan is. It, like, is it attached with a rivet gun? Because, like, sometimes you can just feel like it's, like, playing with fearful symmetry, if you will, just to include Vermin, and it doesn't fit. Did it fit for you here? Um, yes and no. I mean, just 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 to your previous point, I I, I did want to joke at some point that Vermin uh, technically wouldn't have been allowed in our game with uh, Tristan uh, for our 400th episode because uh, I think he was created in a Captain America comic by J.M. DeMatteis. So just just putting that out there in terms of in terms of his integralness to uh, Spider-Man uh, continuity. I mean, like Vermin's inclusion here definitely felt like. A touch of fan service, but I also felt it was effective in the moment. You know, I don't, I don't necessarily feel it was rivet gun territory, but like, you know, it, there was definitely a moment of like, oh, of course, here we go. I mean, like once he was in the sewer, it's like, okay, bring on the vermin, and of course it was like, and it was still different, you know, like because it was, it was the multiple vermin. Again, it, 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 it's it's Spider-Man kind of playing playing out Craven's last hunt in in a way that's both fan servicey, but also kind of trying to prove a. A larger point here of of kind of pushing Craven through what he felt he was pushed through um, alternatively back in the day. So it worked. I don't think I would have been disappointed if he didn't show up, if that makes sense. But like, I wasn't like, oh, come on. You know, like it was just like, okay, you know, here we go. Yeah. <laughs> bring on, bring him on. <laughs> I think it's, it works explicitly because it, of the stated goal from Spider-Man to put Craven through what he was put through. So therefore it works for me. And and I will say like, that's one of the things from Nick Spencer's run that I liked as an update to characters. I think the multiple vermin thing is cool. If, if only because in the name, it could be singular or plural. Say what you will about like people say, you know, Oh, Wells number one is so it's such a departure from the setup that he was given you know, with the end of the Nick Spencer run. But I think some things like this shows that Wells is really uh, like a good yes and player. Like he's taken a lot from the Nick Spencer run and continued to develop it. Not to mention the Norman Osborn sins of it all is a Nick Spencer creation and that he's just taking it to another conclusion. So I, I think Wells has proven himself like a good player with the character and, and willing to to have fun with what people did before. And I appreciate that. Uh, anytime people can make every story feel worthwhile in some way. Oh yeah. I, 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 I feel like this, this run has utilized far more of the Nick Spencer run than I think it had any right to. And that's not, that's not a slag at the Nick Spencer run, but it was just like, Oh, okay. Like, I, yeah. I mean, obviously the big elephant in the room is, the, is the Mary Jane relationship, but like, 
again, like I feel like we're getting an exploration of other relationships and other little nuances that were set up that we wouldn't have maybe not have got. I don't even know if Nick Spencer was going to see it through. I mean, maybe he was. I mean, you know, we, we have reasons to believe he might have in some cases. Anywho, do you want to talk a little bit about the slack before we get uh, on to some other awesome parts of the story? Yeah, absolutely. Mark, tell us about the slack. Well, of course, hundreds of listeners like you hang out in our community of Spider-Man fans on Slack. The amazing Spider-Slack community is absolutely free to join. And you can jump into active conversations with awesome people about collecting, conventions, movies, new comics, old comics, and much, much more. Dan, what's been going on in the Slack this week besides everyone just going, oh my God, Mark's got Amazing Fantasy 15. Yeah, that was that was big news in the Slack and it was cool you revealed it there first in the Slack before we even recorded episode 400. Um, so that community got a little bit of a tease there. You know, Mark showing up once in a blue moon just to tell us like little tidbits like, I got Amazing Fantasy 15. You know, Mark, Mark knows when to show up and drop a bomb. I, 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 know, I know my audience. I know how to play them along, right? You know? <laughs> Absolutely. This is going to be a weird update, but it is something I'm proud of, um, is that this week in the Slack, we really came together as a community to talk about the rules of the Slack because I really wanted to make it an even safer and more enjoyable place to be focused entirely on a shared space for those of us who love Spider-Man. And with like all the social media platforms melting down, I, I know myself personally, without getting too much into the details, feel fairly unsafe on some of them in terms of just like expressing my joy for a comic, like say the one reviewing today without getting like a whole community of people slagging on me. And I felt like changes were needed in the Slack to make it even more safe and fun for people to come in and truly know that they're not going to have to deal with that stuff. So we, we came together as a community and set up a, like a series of five rules about engagement in the Slack, um, that were very clear not to, you know, uh, become a sort of censorship, but really just to like do what our show has been doing for such a long time, which is to create a space of like mutual respect and adoration for the characters like it, don't like it. Everybody's opinions are valid, but we always make sure we treat each other with respect and having those kind of bylaws out there. I don't know why I waited so long, mostly because the community has always been so nice. I didn't feel like I needed to, but it does feel good to like have a place where everybody agrees on like a core tenant and it makes me even more proud of the Slack and the people that are in it. And uh, I'll say if you've ever left the Slack because you felt otherwise or you want to check it out because that sounds appealing right now in, in, in 2023 with the X's of the world and, and, you know, this confused space where where you find your Spider-Man people, the Slack is it. I, I really remain so proud of it and I hope everybody comes and checks it out there's a link in the description of this episode that'll let you sign up in less than a minute like Mark said it's always free come on in we had a we've we crossed well over 500 people in there now it's always looking for one or two more why don't we talk a little bit more about the use of the black costume here you know how you know obviously you know anytime the black costume 
comes into play. It, 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 you know, there's always some, I want to say controversy, but it kind of feels like an event. How, how did this all go for you in terms of the setup with, with Spider-Man and, and his, his uh, threads here? Well, I mean, I, I think it's completely justified. And I, I'm calling this new character Sinister Spider-Man. I know there was a there was a book called that uh, where where Venom was Spider-Man during the the uh, Dark Reign era of comics. You know, th- this to me, I mean, I guess I could, maybe he's Sinner Spider-Man. I don't know. Sinister Spider-Man to me, that's who this is. I'm sure there will be an official name at some point. I thought the setup to the use of the black costume was cool. Like it, it kind of defines the character in a nutshell. It's like he's had this thing in his closet. He doesn't want to admit that it's there and his better instincts have kept him from ever taking it out. But the better instincts aren't around anymore and he's not going to be friendly and he's putting on the black suit. And I felt like if that is your guiding principle for how to write this character, like it says it all right there in that opening part of the book. This is who this is. He's the kind of Peter that would wear the black suit again. And I love the justification even further, just like, you know, mechanically is that the Osborne suit like actually was overloading in that issue we saw at the end of the previous uh, or the page we saw at the end of the previous issue. So it's all blown out and, and all the lights are destroyed. Maybe that's a metaphor too. The lights have gone out and welcome in the black. What did you think about this characterization of of Peter? We've talked a little bit about it, um, but like this is truly a new way of writing this character. And last episode, I, I said something along the lines of like, I'm really curious how Peter is going to uh, be written as a character. Like, and you've said a little bit on this already, but like, were there highlights? Is is there things here that make you more curious about this Peter? Are there things you think we can learn about Peter through this process? As I alluded to in, you know, earlier in the episode, I, I, I was along for the ride here and into this characterization because I felt like at its core, this was true to the character. You know, like I, 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 I feel like we always need to remember when we get a story like this that, you know, going all the way back to Amazing Fantasy 15, it, it, it's, you know, Peter Parker is a character who, you know, is, is initially guided by a desire to, to kind of, you know, Prove the haters wrong, if you will, and 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 shut down the naysayers. And you know, it's it's of course the the mistake of Uncle Ben that drives him into this, you know, this this course of heroism. But like, I don't feel like that other those other characteristics have necessarily completely gone away. He just can suppress them to do the responsible thing. And and obviously, he is in a scenario where he can't now, you know, like due to, you know, whatever means you want to consider getting injected with a spear of sins can be, you know, (laughs) Um, (laughs) that old chestnut. Yeah. That old chestnut. But like, so I, I, I'm, I, I, as a result, I'm looking at this through the lens of like, okay, you know, is, is this consistent with the person who on the cover of amazing fantasy 15 goes, I'm going to show them. And, and, you know, who, who, you know, 
wants to at multiple points during the Lee Ditko run, you know, punch out Flash Thompson. And, you know, if I, you know, if only I could, you know, but I can't because I'm responsible because I'm doing the right thing. It's not so much that I feel that this sinister Spider-Man is being guided by revenge and exacting punishment as much as I feel like this is someone who is not letting the responsibility take over. And I, I mean, that's, that's, that was my takeaway. And that's why it works for me. Yes, he's being the aggressor here. So, you know, there, there's obviously some retribution attached to that. But like, I also feel like a lot of this is just him kind of being like, you're just getting what you deserve finally. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Like, am I, am I making sense or am I kind of talking in circles here? No, I think you're right. I mean, uh, I, I think it's the Peter that has the voice of Uncle Ben quieted. You know, like it, it is no one. Nothing is there to correct his latent desires, uh, which, you know, are often selfish. Like you said, punch back behavior, prove the haters wrong. You know, this is a character that still acknowledges his past and is aware of his transformation. You know, he's just a new man now. And the thing that I really appreciate about it is that it wasn't just a retread of Superior. Like, this is very different than Superior. This guy, this is not a guy who's interested in heroics. He's out for himself. Revenge, retribution, listening to his inner demon, so to speak. So perhaps this is the first time with, like, Peter's mask fully pulled back, you know, like, like what is going on inside there? And, and what if he's listening purely to fear? You know, we have this dialogue going on where all these characters have these dualities inside them of Craven, who is trying to stand up in noble and be proud, the hunter, but really he eventually admits, no, I'm the prey. This is a Spider-Man that's not having that dialogue he is he is just that base level instinct. And I found that uh, deeply interesting. And there are still elements that I'm, I recognize there, like even him throwing that rifle down to Craven as much of a cruel joke as it is. There is a weird, twisted sense of mercy there. Like I'm giving you an out like so. I don't know. Do, do you think. This is a question that I maybe will be answered. And I hope this whole story isn't built around asking this question because I think it's interested in something bigger than the kill code, which I think is like a tired trope at this point. But do you think this Peter is capable of murder? Because to me, he's still, even when he buries Craven, he's just toying with him. I don't see that yet in terms of what they set up. Like, you know, because there, there are multiple parts of this story where Peter could have killed Craven, uh, and he intentionally doesn't. You know, like, like this is to me, this is clearly Peter trying to prove a point. You know, and being malicious and malevolent about it, but still proving a point. Like, you know, is the point that. Part of the controversy of Craven's Last Hunt is the fact that, like, you know, that suicide was was an option. You know, it was like, you know, it's 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 like Craven taking the coward's way out. You know, like he's not facing 
like Spider-Man can't get the win because Craven robs him of that, you know, like and 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 I and I think that's I think this Peter is cognizant of that. You know, it feels to me like it's more important that Peter gets to show this Craven like, you know, a what he did to him but like, you know, what I would have done to your you or your father or however you want to put it. If I could, you know, if you didn't shoot yourself and, you know, like, I think like, again, yeah, throwing the gun down the grave was like a very much like, a, you know, like if you're going to be a coward like your dad, here you go. But, you know, anyway, no, I, I don't I don't think it's going in that direction. And, yeah, we'll see. My takeaway was this is this is far more emotionally charged than just killing, you know, like this is this is about showing something bigger going on here. And I think humiliating him. I also wonder if maybe he's even offering him like a tortured path to redemption, right? If if he can experience what his father put Peter through, maybe he can come out the other side changed in some way. And you see like Craven kind of talking about that, like that, like, you know, if I can just get rid of the madness of my father, maybe I can be my own man, you know? And I, I wonder if, Part of this is Peter testing this Craven to see if he can be a bigger man than his father and and perhaps change his path. And I know right now we're just treating this Peter as evil, but I wonder if it, there's his own sick and twisted version of heroics going on here that is yet to play out. I I I I honestly don't know. One of the other things I found really interesting about this comic and even the comic previous, the final page of the previous issue, we see Peter's transformation, but we don't ever see his face. And uh, Norman throughout this issue references how terrifying the face was and Craven too, that he ran from it, you know, and here it's, it's kept intentionally in the dark in the, in the opening pages where we don't see his face. We see a brief like glint on his eye, it's obviously setting up a very dramatic reveal of what that face looks like. And I wonder if we saw a preview of it in that vision in issue 31, where there was a sort of like goblinized Peter underneath the mask in like that kind of ayahuasca trip that Craven and Queen Goblin were on. But you know, that's something I think that we've yet to see is like, what does he even look like uh, under this? Uh, 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 It seems to be an intentional like tease and withholding. And I, I'm excited for that visual if it, if it is to come, which I suspect it is. We've already talked about both of them, but in terms of writing, I thought this book had some great one-liners specifically. I'm not my father and Peter saying close enough. And, and of course, here's this in case you want to skip to the end. I mean, they're kind of darkly funny and there was definitely some like, dark comedy in this, even like Vermin getting his teeth punched out made me laugh. You know, I think Wells, when his comedy is directed in the right way, it really lands. And it reminds me of Nick Spencer. Like not all of his jokes I thought were timed appropriately or landed, but when they did, they really worked. And, you know, this is kind of like the second comedy writer we've had on the book. Let's talk about, Gleason, though I know I I kind of opened the show talking about him, but let's 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 dive in deep here to kind of wrap this review here because like again like I 
Yes, Wells did some great writing here, but like, man, like this is such a visual book. Like this, this, this issue specifically, and 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 like, you know, they were going to try to, they were trying to pull something off here that, you know, yeah, people have attempted in Spider-Man before with mixed results, but like, oh man, like, did Gleason's art just really capture it? You know, like, like what, 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 what were, what were your big takeaways with what Gleason did here? I mean, I think this is his best work on the title yet. And maybe that's because he gets to lean into using his inks in a heavier way, really playing with the darkness uh, of this. Like I think about like, there's a lot of iconic images in this. When I think about that image of Spider-Man dragging Craven at the end into a pure negative field of black, that to me is like really exemplary or an example of like what was great about this comic is the visual pacing of it using a lot of vertical slices, but finding the exact right image to put in there, breaking up the panels into like trippy, you know, drug, you know, like things. And I don't know. He just, to me, this is the first book of his that I was like, man, he absolutely nailed on like a Dicko issue 33 level visual pacing in a comic. I, I think this is like a masterclass on how to do that. I would put it up there with like JRJR's best stuff. I think it was what issue 23 of this arc where Peter returns and ends up fighting Captain America. I thought was another visual stunner. I mean, these guys are operating at the top of the game and this is, I think his best stuff yet um, in, in that Avenue. How about you? What did, were there any images or sequences that stood out to you in particular? I mean, many, I mean, just like that, that, that first visual of, you know, Spider-Man in the black mask. And it's like, you know, and I think it's going to be the lead image of our, of our podcast uh, banner title here uh, for this episode. It, you know, it, it's, 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 you know, it's trippy, but it's also monstrous, you know, just like everything with like, you know, from the the cracks of lightning the the burying of craven at the end and like it's direct references to craven's last time i mean a lot of references to other famous spider-man stories including even like you know the 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 red and blues and the garbage can which kind of reminded me of spider-man no more so you know obviously a lot of visual references to past craven's story but like it just every every panel just set a mood and like you said like there's not a lot of plot in this book. I mean, like even from a recap standpoint, this is probably one of my shorter recaps that I've done. It just felt so visually rich and so um, so emotionally charged because of those visuals. Like this really felt like a full story, even if there wasn't like a lot that happened. This whole issue to me visually is instantly iconic. Like there's, you know, it's like have your pick of visuals, you know? <laughs> The uh, the comic that this most reminds me of, and maybe this will be reflective in our grading as well of this comic, is um, Superior Spider-Man number nine, which is, I think, the the one and only comic that we gave double A pluses to. And it's just Spider-Man, you know, fighting for his life or whatever. And it's a really unusual scenario, but it is like light on plot, heavy on vibes and like really an artist showcase, which I think amazing Spider-Man has become over the past decade is really, it's been a showcase for the best in the industry. You know, you mentioned the visual references. I had a big smile on my face, you know, as much as it's fan service, seeing turning the page 
and finding Amazing Spider-Man 294's cover as like interior artwork that made sense in the moment, whereas it never did in the original. Like none of the covers for Craven's Lost Hunt really like match up with the interior of the comics, whether their costumes are different or whatever. Well, you know, Web, uh, like Web of 32 C- does, but other than that. Okay, I mean, sure, that's fair. That's fair, that's fair. You know, or seeing just the identical repetition of the angles of of Craven burying Spider-Man or Spider-Man burying Craven uh, was, was really cool. But you're right, like, you know, about it. Rhythmically, too, like the original Craven's last time is punctuated by like, these sound effects of, you know, the shovels digging, you know, like uh, the ringing, uh, you know, uh, uh, of, of various things. It's a it's a like really atmospheric book. And I feel like that rhythm is here, too. Um, shout out to Marcio Menez, who I think, Mark, is he the best colorist in comics? Because I think he is like at the very least, I think he's the best colorist in Spider-Man history. And and stop me if I'm going like way at like has there been a thing that he's done that is not absolutely drop dead gorgeous? Well, no, I mean absolutely. I mean the 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 only pushback I'll give you is there's still Edgar Delgado out there, but 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 Marcio Menez is I, I think right on par with what Edgar has done with the book over the years for sure. So I, I would put him above Edgar. No no disrespect to Edgar. Like I I think Marcio is on another level. I uh but but. Uh, I don't know. Uh, t- taste is what taste is. I I turned the page and I immediately thought of you, Mark, in the like, I, I would call it a clear McFarlane reference of Spider-Man, like in his most bendy, like black suit, you know, lightning striking behind him mode. I mean, like nobody bended Spider-Man like McFarlane did. And this to me, like it's so much that his like, blackness of his face is melding into his like groin I guess is what I would call it but like at that the Joe Caramagna's like laughter like crisscrossing the page like what an image I mean anyway I, I, we could talk forever about all of the incredible artwork in here and um, maybe we still wouldn't do it enough justice but this is one of those comics I finished and then read twice more immediately like and there's few books i feel i feel like superior nine was like that like amazing spider-man's like 698 to 700 were like that like there's few things where i put it down and i'm like what did i just read i i stood up with my wife sitting next to me and like paced around the room and i was like what an issue you know, like it got me that height you know wow. and you can call me whatever you want to call me a shill or whatever like <laughs> Like I, I enjoyed this comic, uh, you know. I don't know. I mean, like if that, you know, whatever praise that is. I thought it was a great comic book. Do you want to get to grades, or do you want to add any final thoughts? No, I, th- I think we can get to grades. I mean, I will just add, how dare you like things, Dan? But, but, <laughs> yeah, I know. Sue me. Uh, what are you gonna do? I, 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 I'll go first, just in case you want to, like, you know, like go double down and one up me or something. But I, I'm I'm giving this an A, Dan. Like this is this is the best issue of Amazing Spider-Man we've gotten in several years, in my opinion. Um, you know, and that includes even some of the last of the the Dead Language arc, which I enjoyed issues of, but you know, ultimately felt unfulfilled by this this was just great. I I, I loved it. A. I still think that issues four and five like are in tight contention in this run just because I thought like, I don't think I've ever had the rug pulled out underneath me like quite like that. And then to respond with such humanity, 
in issue five, I thought was really beautiful. But I mean, like this is hemming and hawing. I think this is a, like as close to a masterstroke comic as you get. The only thing that brings it down for me is that it is so derivative of Craven's last time. And again, I, I think it does good things with that, but it doesn't truly stand out as its own unique interpretation of the character in the way that I felt like issues four and five did, but this is an a for me. So solid flat a boy, I can't wait to see where this arc goes because if it follows on this trajectory, I say this at the start of every arc. Uh, and maybe that's what makes world without love stand out to me. The issues one through five, because it did end so strong. It, it, it remains one of the few arcs of Spider-Man that, ends better than it starts two a's look at us we are all disco stew saying if these trends continue <laughs> anyway <laughs> there you go there's your but the trends are not going to continue tonight because mark we got to end this show yeah it's that time time for all good things to come to an end so we want to say thank you to you the listeners and viewers for tuning in to this episode of the amazing spider talk Yeah, this podcast exists because of listener support on Patreon. So for only $3.99 a month, you can help support our show's existence while getting early episodes, including these reviews the same weeks the comics release, exclusive artwork, and a ton of other bonuses. Mark and I are cooking up something really awesome for everybody that probably will be out by the time that you hear this. So uh, check your email if you are a Patreon supporter. But as always, thank you to everyone who already supports us in the work that we do. And a special thanks to our newest contributor, Derek Keough, and to Thaddeus Smith for upgrading his tier and supporting us even more. Thank you to both of you so much for helping Mark do what we, Mark and I do what we do. Yeah, I would say you're just helping me do it. Um, no, yeah, uh, just Mark. He's the one that does all the work. Exactly. No, you Thank you both. Um, of course, to download our earliest episodes, including interviews with legendary creators like Jan Demetrius, who talks about Craven's Last Hunt, uh, Tom DeFalco, Ron Friends, Mark Bagley, David Michelini, and many more, subscribe to our Amazing Spider Talk Back Issues podcast on Apple Podcasts. Yeah, and this podcast was edited by Rick Coast. The video version of the show is available on YouTube and was edited by Alex Galucki. Our artwork comes handcrafted by artists Ron Friend, Sal Buscema, and Nick Cagnetti. Our theme songs were produced by Ryland Bojack, Tony Thaxton, and Spider Madge. And our animated intro was created and performed by Josh Sutton. So, Mark, until we offer an option at the start of our podcast to, quote, skip to the end, end quote, What's our motto? <laughs> With great podcasts, there must also come the amazing spider talk. <laughs>